Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, February 8th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Melissa Topshire. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. U.S. Fed Chairman Powell says the inflation fight may last a while. Fighting intensifies in eastern Ukraine. A U.N. report finds unemployment is driving militants in sub-Saharan Africa. A court rules South Korea must compensate a Vietnam War victim. A Kenya judge says that Meta can be sued by an ex-moderator. Migrants in New York City are given one-way tickets to Canada. A report concludes NYPD officers should be punished for their 2020 Black Lives Matter protest response. Polls show low enthusiasm for a Biden 2024 rerun. Antibiotic use in farming is projected to climb amid fears of drug resistance. And more than a third of U.S. plants and animals are believed to be at risk of extinction. In our top story, U.S. Fed Chairman Powell says inflation fight may last quite a bit of time. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Reuters, The Hill, New York Post, and CNN. Responding to Friday's Labor Department report showing an increase in job hiring, U.S. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said the process of bringing inflation down to the 2% target is likely to take quite a bit of time, and that, he said, it's probably going to be bumpy. Powell's statement came before the Economic Club of Washington, where he declined to say whether the Fed would implement rate hikes higher than the 5 to 5.25% range forecast in December. However, in the wake of the surprising recent jobs report, he said it was prepared to if continued wage growth led to price jumps. Following Powell earlier expressing optimism over slowing inflation while avoiding recession layoffs, he added that the parallel downward trends of both, which runs contrary to most economic models, demonstrate the past COVID economy. Referring to the more than 500,000 jobs added in January, Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari, who a month ago said the rate should rise to 5.4%, said he doesn't think the current rates have made much of an imprint. Since Friday, he and several other Fed members have signaled support for raising the rate above the 5 to 5.25% range. Bond investors and economists believe that a slowdown in investment, spending, and hiring could lead to a pause on rate hikes in March and May, but that economic reacceleration could result in waiting until the summer for any pauses. No Fed officials have projected any rate cuts this year. While a significant drop in inflation is expected this year, Powell said the Fed expects it not to hit the 2% mark until 2024. He predicts housing inflation to come down in the middle of this year and noted progress in the prices of goods though also acknowledged the service sector remains high. Thank you, Eric, for the facts on that first story. And on this program, we separate the facts from the narrative spins. We'll start this round of spins with a narrative A from Reuters. As the January jobs report seemed to surprise Fed officials and investors alike, the Fed's next move should probably be aimed at hiking rates a little bit more. As of December, inflation was still twice the target rate. And unless some drastic increase occurs before the next meeting, raising the benchmark to five and a quarter percent or more will likely be what's needed. Business Insider gives us narrative B for this story. Despite the current official outlook, the U.S. could see Fed rate cuts this year rather than hikes or pauses. Although it didn't show in the January report, 
All it will take is one month of negative job growth on top of the weakening economy. This is a real possibility given the already declining economy as well as the recent massive layoffs, particularly in the tech sector. They mention nothing about the price of eggs. Oh, those eggs, man. What I'm looking at now is the price of chickens. Absolutely. Where I live, you're allowed to have four chickens in your yard. So I think I'm going to do it. Yeah, well, you should. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. And now day 349 of the Ukraine conflict. Fighting intensifies in the east as Russia prepares for a possible offensive. Here the facts is agreed upon by BBC News, The Washington Post, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, The Telegraph and Reuters. Ukrainian governor of the Luhansk region, Serhii Haidai, said on Tuesday that tens of thousands of Russian reinforcements are being sent to eastern Ukraine as Russia reportedly prepares for an offensive planned for later this month. However, the UK's Ministry of Defense said that any plans for a new offensive may be unlikely to be successful given a lack of munitions and manpower. A new offensive would come as Russian forces continue their push to capture the Donetsk city of Bakhmut, which has seen heavy fighting in recent months. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu said on Tuesday that Russian forces were making good progress, but Ukraine maintains that the city has not yet been encircled. As the fighting continues, Ukraine claimed that the last 24 hours were the deadliest of the entire war for Russian troops increasing its tally of Russian military dead by 1,030 overnight to 133,190. These figures cannot be verified and are often seen as unreliable. This comes as Russia's state investigative committee said it was examining whether Ukrainian forces used chemical weapons near Bakhmut and Solidar. Ukrainian officials said that its forces have never used chemical weapons anywhere at any time. Russia's allegations couldn't be independently verified. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on Tuesday said in response to the continued controversy and speculation regarding whether Ukraine's Minister of Defense, Alexei Reznikov, will be removed, that rumors or any other pseudo-information that could undermine unity in the war against Russia must end. Elsewhere, some analysts predict that Switzerland is close to breaking its centuries-old policy of neutrality in global and European affairs as the Swiss public increasingly has supported Ukraine, and the current political mood has put pressure on the government to end a ban on exports of Swiss weapons to war zones. We have a few spins that have emerged from this story. Uh, Melissa, thank you for the facts, by the way. The first spin is the anti-Russian narrative coming from AP News. In attempting to take Bakhmut, Russian forces have used scorched-earth tactics and turned the once-popular tourist destination into a hell on earth. The Kremlin is so hungry for any success that it's willing to go to any length to take the city, even if it's been turned to rubble. And here's a pro-Russia narrative from TASS. If Russian forces take control of Bakhmut, it would be a devastating loss for Ukraine. Not only has Ukraine lost hundreds of troops in trying to retain the city, but this operation would also enable Russia to continue its advance into key areas of Donetsk, including Slovyansk and Kramatorsk. And we do have a nerd narrative for this story coming from the Metaculous Prediction community, and it says there is a 40% chance that at least 100,000 Russian soldiers will be killed in the Russo-Ukrainian War before 2024. 
In our next story, news coming from the United Nations as unemployment is driving armed groups in sub-Saharan Africa. Here are the facts as agreed upon by UN News, Al Jazeera, United Nations Development Program, and China View. A report by the UN Development Program, or UNDP, on Tuesday found that unemployment is the main force driving people to join armed groups in sub-Saharan Africa, which has become a global epicenter of violent extremism. The study was based on interviews with over 2,000 people in eight countries, including more than 1,000 former fighters that are currently detained. A quarter of voluntary recruits cited needing money as their primary reason for joining, while less than one-fifth cited religious ideology. This represents a new trend. The accounts of unemployment as the main driver for recruitment have increased by 92% from the 2017 UNDP study of violent extremism. Nearly half of the voluntary recruits stated that a so-called trigger event led them to sign up, with over two-thirds mentioning human rights abuses, often carried out by government forces, as the tipping point. Compared to the control group comprised of 1,000 individuals from the same communities, those enlisting in armed groups have lower levels of education and higher mistrust in government. An additional year of school reduced by 13% the likelihood of recruitment, as poverty, destitution, and lack of opportunity leave individuals vulnerable to the likes of the Islamic State group Boko Haram and Al-Qaeda. The report recommends moving away from security-driven responses to development-based approaches focused on prevention. Thank you, Eric, for those facts. And we'll start this round of spins with an establishment critical narrative. And this is written by Foreign Policy in Focus. Throughout decades of military intervention in sub-Saharan Africa, the Sahel, and the Horn, the world has seen that combat solutions don't work. As nations like the U.S. continue to drop bombs, which have killed countless civilians, local recruitment only increases. The West has known this fact since long before 9-11 and the War on Terror, but hopefully this report will finally help bring military intervention to an end and replace it with more humane, economic, and political programs. The Center for Strategic and International Studies is giving us the pro-establishment narrative. To claim that the U.S. and its Western allies only go to Africa for military exploits is preposterous. The U.S. military provides food aid and disaster relief and supports democracy throughout the continent. Counterterrorism is a broad term that, when looked at closely, includes all of the non-combat aspects that those opposed to military intervention talk about. A court rules South Korea must compensate a Vietnam War victim. And here are the facts as agreed upon by the Korea Jun Gong Daily, The Washington Post, NPR Online News, Korea Times, The New York Times, and Al Jazeera. The Seoul Central District Court ruled Tuesday that the South Korean government must pay some $24,000 with interest to compensate a Vietnamese woman who was shot and lost relatives during the 1968 Phong Ni massacre. This marks the first time South Korea is held responsible for a massacre of civilians during the Vietnam War, likely setting a precedent in the country and encouraging victims of other alleged mass killings to file similar lawsuits. The verdict comes after the now 62-year-old Nguyen Thi Tan filed a compensation lawsuit against the South Korean government in 2020, seeking an apology along with financial compensation. 
Tan was seven when South Korean Marines reportedly killed more than 70 civilians, including five of her family members, and wounded another 20 in Gangnam province just weeks before U.S. troops committed the Mi Lai massacre. The court drew on her testimony as well as testimonies of other Vietnamese villagers and South Korean war veterans, including former Marine Ryu Jin Song, who provided a first-hand account of how soldiers shot at unarmed civilians. Seoul claimed that Vietnamese nationals couldn't file a lawsuit at a Korean court due to an international treaty, that the massacre could also have been carried out by the communist Viet Cong disguised as Koreans, or justified due to the nature of guerrilla warfare. But the court rejected those arguments. Thank you for those facts, Melissa. Narrative A is coming from Vice. After decades of government cover-ups, Tan's successful lawsuit has finally achieved a de facto acknowledgement of atrocities committed by Korean troops during the war in Vietnam. In the face of extensive official documentation proving that these wartime crimes against civilians indeed took place, the Korean government should now outright admit wrongdoing and apologize to victims. Narrative B is written by the Warfare History Network. South Korea became involved in the Vietnam War following a formal request made by the South Vietnamese government for military assistance as communists escalated violence, engaging in counterinsurgency and medically treating over 30,000 civilians. While it's true that civilians could have been killed by Korean troops, this wrongdoing calls attention to the monstrosity of war and the incomprehensible reality of battlefield rage. More must be done to address the root causes, and not just by South Korea. News coming from Kenya as a judge rules Meta can be sued by an ex-moderator. And here are the facts as agreed upon by One America, BBC News, The Griot, and Capital News. A Kenyan labor court on Monday ruled that Meta, Facebook's parent company, can be sued in the country after a former content moderator filed a lawsuit citing unsuitable working conditions. Daniel Motong, a former employee of the content moderation company Sama, which Meta contracted out to review content, claims he was paid $2.20 an hour to review posts whose content included beheadings and child abuse. Motong claims the content he was exposed to, which included rape and torture, damaged his and his colleagues' mental health. He claimed that Meta didn't offer mental health resources, demanded long hours, and paid little. Meta tried to have the case, brought by United Kingdom-based legal activist firm Foxglove, dismissed by saying the court had no jurisdiction as it is neither based in nor trades in Kenya. However, the judge said the companies were proper parties in this case, which the court now set to convene on March 8th to discuss further hearings. Motong is also suing Sama by whom he was recruited from South Africa to work in Nairobi, where much of the moderation for East and South Africa was handled. Sama argues that it provides all workers with competitive wages, benefits, upward mobility, and robust mental health care. This comes as Meta faces another lawsuit filed in Kenya, particularly related to harmful content regarding the war in Ethiopia's northern Tigray region. The company in 2021 was also sued by Rohingya refugees, who fled Myanmar to Bangladesh for $150 million for similar reasons. Thank you, Eric, for the facts on that disturbing story. Several narrative spins have emerged, and we'll start with an establishment-critical narrative from Wired. 
Meta outsources its gruesome content moderation services to faraway countries so that it doesn't have to deal with the consequences. It's high time for the tech giant to provide the workers it treated inhumanely with the same pay and mental health resources it gives to its employees in the U.S. Motong was fired after trying to unionize and call for better treatment. So this isn't just about Meta utilizing the lower average wages in third world countries. And a pro-establishment narrative coming from Berkeley Haas. Though the common trope is that large companies outsource to other countries to benefit from exploitive labor, the truth is that the wages being paid are almost always at or above the average wage in those nations. When compared to the alternative job opportunities outsourced workers have, it's rarely better than what a U.S. corporation is offering. In our next story, migrants leaving New York City head to Canada. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox 5 New York, The New York Post, BBC News, and Yahoo Finance Canada. Amid New York City's migration crisis, New York City Mayor Eric Adams confirmed in an interview Monday that the city is providing tickets to migrants seeking to go elsewhere, with many heading to Canada. The National Guard has reportedly been distributing bus tickets to migrants at the Port Authority bus terminal in Manhattan for them to head to upstate New York and then Canada. The free bus tickets are reportedly to Plattsburgh, New York, roughly 20 miles from the Canadian border, with Adams' administration then paying for taxis and shuttles to bring the migrants to Quebec. Some say this plan exploits a loophole in the 2002 U.S.-Canada treaty called the Safe Third Country Agreement. Christine Frechette, Quebec's immigration minister, called Adams' move surprising because under the STCA, asylum seekers must file their claim in the first country they enter. However, the agreement does not apply to unofficial entry points, such as Roxham Road, where New York City is sending the migrants. Frechette said the current situation highlights the need to solve the Roxham Road problem, adding that the U.S. and Canada are negotiating an update to the safe third country agreement. Adams' decision to send migrants elsewhere comes as New York City is in the middle of a surging migration crisis. Last month, Adams declared there was no room for migrants in New York City, and he called on the federal government to help solve the national crisis. Thank you for the facts, Melissa. There are two spins. And the first one is a Republican narrative coming from Flipboard. Adams, who sanctimoniously condemned U.S. border states for sending migrants to New York, is now hypocritically taking advantage of the STCA's loophole, which has opened a back, albeit illegal, door into Canada, where the majority face arrest. This calls attention not only to Adams' fabricated concern for migrants, but more importantly, to the need to close the STCA's glaring gap. And here's the Democratic narrative from KTVZ. Unlike GOP states that use migrants as political pawns, Adam is simply helping those already wishing to go elsewhere. Despite questions about its efficacy, the Safe Third Country Agreement is working, and Canadian officials are doing their best to make up for any perceived flaws in the agreement. Migration and asylum-seeking is a delicate issue, and with some tweaks, the agreement can help bring order and fairness to Canada, the U.S., and migrants. If somebody gave you a one-way ticket to anywhere, where would you go? <laughs> where would you go? You first. I think I'd go to like Fiji or, you know, some kind of tropical island. You take Fiji, I'll take Cabo. Nice choice. A rock and roll <laughs> retirement. There you go. In our next story, a review board decides that NYPD officers deserve punishment for a 2020 protest response. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CBS, New York Post, and Independent. On Monday, the Civilian Complaint Review Board, an independent board that reviews complaints made against the New York City Police Department, issued a report recommending punishment for dozens of officers found to have used excessive force and violated other conduct policies during the protests that followed the 2020 murder of George Floyd in Minnesota. In 140 instances, peaceful protesters were reportedly hit with batons and pepper spray against NYPD policy. Accusations that officers refused to identify themselves were also confirmed by the report, which found that more than 600, or 43%, misconduct allegations were closed because officers couldn't be identified. Of 800 complaints made against officers related to the protests, 146 were substantiated by the board, but the NYPD commissioner only issued discipline in 42 of those cases. In response to the report, a spokesperson said the NYPD quote, respectfully objects to much of the board's characterization of its response to protests. The president of the city's largest police union called those who compiled the report, quote, anti-cop activists. The board suggested 17 policy reforms the NYPD could make in order to address the issues highlighted in the report. The NYPD and police forces across the country were forced into action in the summer of 2020 after Floyd a black man who was accused of trying to pay for cigarettes with a fake bill, was killed by police officers, and protests erupted in numerous municipalities. Thank you, Eric, for the facts. We'll start these spins with a left narrative from the Gothamist. Despite all the roadblocks the New York Police Department put up to hinder this investigation, the report is quite expansive and shows how far the department has to go to make sure its officers police peaceful protests in a safe and respectful manner in the future. This might be the tip of the iceberg, as the board had to postpone the report's release for months while complaints continued to pour in. Fox News gives us a right narrative for this story. Reports like this contribute to the staffing shortage of the NYPD and police forces across the country are facing. Police officers have a dangerous job and need to often react without a moment's notice. But all they're rewarded with is reports like this defund the police movements and other anti-cop rhetoric. If Americans want their cities to be policed better, officers should be better supported and given more of the benefit of the doubt. Polls show low enthusiasm for a Biden 2024 campaign. And here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, The Washington Post, NBC, and Fox News. A new poll from the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research shows that just 37 percent of Democrats want President Joe Biden to seek a second term, a drop from the 52 percent who said they supported him running again in a poll taken just after last year's midterms. Biden's approval rating in this latest poll stood at 41 percent, similar to his approval at the end of 2022, and it showed that a majority of Democrats approve of the president's work. However, among all Americans, just 22% said he should run for re-election. Most of the decline in those supporting a Biden run in 2024 came among the younger demographic, with 49% of Democrats 45 and older saying he should run again, in contrast to just 23% of those under 45. A Washington Post-ABC News poll produced similar results with 58% of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents saying they'd like a different nominee in 2024. In addition, 62% of Americans say they would be dissatisfied or angry if Biden was re-elected in 2024. 
Despite the polling, a low approval rating, and an ongoing special investigation into his handling of classified documents, Biden's appearance at the Democratic National Committee's winter meeting over the weekend was met with the chance of four more years from Democratic power brokers. Biden has said several times in the past year that he expects to run again. Those are the facts, and here are the spins. The first one is a Republican narrative coming from Washington Examiner. Americans are right to be lukewarm about Biden's performance. A Biden 2024 run would force the Democratic leader to answer for his age and mental capacity, as well as Kamala Harris's poor performance as vice president, his own classified document scandal, and the seemingly nonstop controversy surrounding his son, Hunter. Biden would also have to take responsibility for a slow economic recovery that might be hindered further by the Federal Reserve's aggressive rate raising, while ordinary Americans continue to fight rising prices. And the Washington Post brings us the Democratic narrative. Tribalism and negative media spin will always keep Biden's approval rating artificially low. The most important thing to consider in the context of a potential 2024 campaign is economic recovery, seen most recently in the jobs report. The predicted recession has yet to arrive, and if the economy stays on track, current success will give Biden the kind of popularity among voters that would see him elected to the White House for a second term. And there's a nerd narrative that says there is a 62% chance that Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee for the 2024 U.S. presidential election, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. In our next story, antibiotic use in farming to climb amid fears of drug resistance. Here are the facts as agreed upon by AMR Insights, Forbes, Nature, and Stat. A study published in PLOS Global Public Health 3 has found that the use of antibiotics in animal farming is forecast to climb 8% between 2020 and 2030. Overuse of antibiotics in animals is believed to cause an increase in antibiotic resistance in humans, in turn causing a rise in untreatable bacterial infections. The study predicted that, by the end of the decade, more than 107,000 tons of antimicrobial drugs will be used to prevent or treat fungal, bacterial, viral, and parasitical infections in farm animals. Epidemiologist Thomas Van Beckel and Rania Mulchandani of the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology worked to collect data from 229 countries, finding that the majority of data on antibiotic use in the world is unusable. Extrapolated data revealed that while China uses the most antibiotics in farming, Pakistan is expected to have the largest growth in use in the 10-year period to 2030. More than 50% of antibiotics sold in the U.S. are used on healthy farm animals to combat the conditions of large-scale industrial meat and animal product farming. The practice leads to antibiotic-resistant superbugs that are spread through consumption. World health experts, including the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the World Health Organization, have expressed concerns that the overuse of antibiotics is a pressing issue in public health. Drug resistance in humans has caused infections including MRSA, gonorrhea, salmonellosis, tuberculosis, and pneumonia to become more difficult to treat. Patients, medical professionals, and biopharmaceutical companies have shown support for a bipartisan bill that is awaiting congressional approval. The Pasteur Act would encourage investments into new antibiotics and tools to address drug resistance to existing antibiotics. Thank you for the facts on that fascinating story, Eric. We'll start these spins with a pro-establishment narrative. This is provided by Science. 
While a range of factors have led to antibiotic drug resistance in humans, the FDA has stepped up to curb the overuse of antibiotics in farm animals specifically. The American Society of Microbiology applauds these safeguards as an initial step in the fight. There will always be more work to be done, and there will always be critics of the government's actions. But change always has to start somewhere, and progress is being made. And Vox is giving us an establishment-critical narrative. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has known for decades that the methods of the meat industry create problems for Americans. It wasn't until the 2010s that the FDA tried to get a handle on the problem by requiring prescriptions for antibiotics, a step that European agencies had approved decades earlier. Public health experts are right to demand the FDA be more aggressive in the fight against this dangerous overuse if we are to see a reduction in untreatable infections that put people's lives at risk. And we have another nerd narrative here, saying there's a 50% chance that at least 70,000 will die annually in the U.S. as a result of antibiotic-resistant infections before 2026. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Well, Eric, are you ready to get your bow and arrow out and start hunting wild turkeys and pheasants? It's looking that way, isn't it? We're going to have to fend for ourselves if this continues. Just don't shoot my chickens. I really need those eggs. (laughs) Okay, deal. In our final story today, more than a third of U.S. plants and animals are at risk of extinction. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Independent, Common Dreams, The Hill, and The Business Times. According to a report released on Monday, 40% of animals and 34% of plants in the U.S. are at risk of extinction, while 41% of ecosystems are facing collapse. The conservation research group behind the publication said the most at-risk species include snails, amphibians, and freshwater mussels. NatureServe, which receives and analyzes data from more than 1,000 scientists in its U.S. and Canadian networks, has compiled a database of ecological information since the 1960s on the health of animals, plants, and ecosystems. The areas of the U.S. with the highest percentages of species at risk, California, Texas, and the southeastern U.S., are those in which human population growth and urbanization are booming. The report also says that pollinators are particularly threatened by the effects of habitat loss, climate change, and pollution. Of assessed pollinator species, 37% are at risk. Conservation efforts must focus on these invertebrates, says NatureServe, as many of them play an integral role in maintaining healthy ecosystems. More than half of all cacti species in the U.S. are also at risk of extinction, in addition to 200 species of trees. Among the country's ecosystems, expansive temperate and boreal grasslands are among the most imperiled, with over half of 78 grassland types at risk of range-wide collapse. The report states that while they are overlooked in environmental strategies, species with conservation needs are often essential to wider ecosystems. The publication found that threats were varied and included habitat degradation and land conversion, invasive species, damming and polluting the rivers, and climate change. Thank you, Melissa, for the facts. This story has generated several spins. The first one is Narrative A, coming from Business Times. The conclusions of the report are a terrifying call to action. The data shows the need for the public to help prevent the disappearance of many of our plant species and act to counter threats to biodiversity, including habitat degradation and land conversion, invasive species, pollution of rivers, and climate change. The report can help lawmakers understand the urgency of passing protection. 
such as the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. NBC News brings us Narrative B. While this data is alarming and more must certainly be done to protect our plants and animals, this latest report should be taken with a grain of salt. Extinction rates are notoriously difficult to predict accurately, and doomsayers have warned of mass extinctions for decades. There seems to be a general trend of over-exaggerating in the face of uncertainty. And why would this time be any different? ForeignPolicy.com is giving us a narrative C for this story. Democracy is about compromise, but the urgency of climate change waits for no one. The structural mismatch of democratic systems with the urgency of the rapidly altering environment is clear domestically in the U.S., but is most evident internationally when nations with diverse political and social aims struggle to agree on a cooperative course of action. Inaction on these issues is not necessarily the fault of politicians, but the fundamentally flawed nature of democratic systems in their current form. And the nerds have the last word. With our final narrative coming from the Metaculous Prediction community, there's a 20% chance that there will be a successful attempt at cloning the full, functional genome of a species extinct for more than a thousand years by 2025. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, February 8th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google. Play. For Melissa Topshire, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the news.